Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yordina Azband, our daf of the day, Masachet Ketubot, daf Kaf Dalid, page 24. Um, the part I want to talk about today actually has a, a large um, preamble kind of discussion, which is also a, veers into, I would say, the methodology of learning. So I want to talk about it I'm going to read a bit and then talk about it outside and read a bit. The case is, we've got a breita, right, where there's a case of two people who each say that they are kohanim, and therefore, right, and therefore they're each reliable in or believable in saying that the other is eligible to eat truma. But two alone, two witnesses alone in this case, which is, I think, particularly interesting, um, is not enough to say that he could get married along the lines of being a Kohen. They need three people to testify that they're Kohanim. And two testify to each other, meaning you have the witnesses, you have two people's testimony to establish somebody as a Kohen for all purposes. And the person himself doesn't get to count in that. Um, where it's, I think, worth noting that some of the Kohanim um, uh, what, privileges and requirements are are bigger even than Truma. And then Rabbi Huda says that even for Truma, you still need three. Um, you know, he's being, would say, for the establishment of being a Kohen for anything. So now the Gemara goes on. This way, I say there's a certain amount of like methodology involved here, because there seems to be a question of you know what if they've, what if they've made a pact, just the two of them, where they'll each testify that the other is a is a kohen for the sake of eating truma, and that's why the third party would be necessary. And then really, but they're colluding, meaning it, there's it, you know they've made a deal to say that the that each other are kohanim, but it's not really true. And so then the Gemara says, well. One second, there's a breiter that says, We've got a case of, we've got, they're called, literally, they're called donkey drivers, meaning merchants of some kind, right? Where they come to a city and they say, my stuff is from this year's crop and my my co-donkey uh, donkey drivers produce or products are from the old year's crops and then the point being that you know the question is it because his stuff is not yet dry it's going to be of a lesser quality because it was a recent harvest not quite ready for use as compared to the older stuff which is more ready for use and therefore considered more durable or and likewise so what if you know my stuff has already had um has already had treatment and my store taken and his is not Right. At what point do we say that these people are ne'aman, credible, believable, or not? And this case of these donkey drivers, they're considered not credible, right? Because again, the presumption is that the two merchants, you know, kind of made a plan beforehand that if you put down your own pro- products for the, you know, to elevate the products of the other guy, the whole point is to make yourself seem more credible, right? As opposed to really being more credible. And in this case, Rabbi Huda says that that he is credible. I mean, the donkey drivers are credible, and he's not worried about the collusion. So we here have a case of Rabbi Huda 
who's worried about collusion for the Kohanim and against Rabbi Yehuda, who's not worried about uh, collusion in the case of the donkey drivers. So this goes on for a bit, right, to figure out, you know, are the rabbis contradicting themselves, meaning the majority view contradicting themselves as well, and Rabbi Yehuda potentially still contradicting himself as well. And the Gemara goes, gets to the point where what happens is that the the there's an explanation that the donkey drivers are of greater concern, you know, of possible colluding, or whether you're going to believe them or not. It says that the tools of the trade are in his hand. And likewise, the second donkey driver comes with the tools of his trade in his hand, meaning that they're both there to sell their stuff. So to if you're praising the other guy's produce and you're putting down your own, like that's raising a big question because you've got all your whole wagon full of or cart, whatever, you know, of stuff to sell. So then why would you be why would you be putting yourself down? This is like against the rules of competition. So the idea of collusion kicks in because it seems too odd, right? That this is what the merchant would be doing. The merchant should be saying, come buy my stuff, ignore him, right? And and then the assumption is that that's what he's doing anyway, just in a different way. Um, okay, so then the Gemara wants to know, how do we know about this position of Rabbi Chama Bar Abba, I mean, Bar Ukva, I'm sorry, that he's quoting something, right, as a solution. This I have in parentheses, right, so it's not necessarily part of the Gemara, it was taken out later. So the case is in Torah, right, which is a long way away and really only in the Mishnah, um, that the potter who fashions his, he, he the we've got a potter who's making his kalim in tahara, meaning when he's tahur. And then what happens if he leaves his pots, he goes down to drink water from the river, and forget about the point about that big from the yor, from the Nile, right? That's irrelevant to this case. The concern is that because he was gone from his pots, then maybe the people who are Tameh came and they came in contact with the pots. And now even though he wants to sell them as Tahor because he was Tahor the time at the time that he was making them, then maybe they've made them Tameh. So the verdict is the inner pots are pure and the outer pots are impure. Meaning if he's got a whole, I don't know, cluster of them, you can imagine that somebody might have touched the outer one, but not the inner one. They're not. That's not the way, it doesn't make sense that that would happen without anybody knowing. And then the Gemara says, one second, but aren't both of them going to be, there's another breakdown that says, elu elu both of them are going to, the inner ones and the outer ones are going to be impure. So Rabbi Chavi Bar Ukva says, So he says, when we're talking about the tools of the potter's trade that are being in his hand, meaning he wants to sell all of those pots. And since all of the pots are potentially for sale, then anybody who might buy them is going to touch whatever they might come to buy, including the inner pots, including the outer pots. Meaning this is this is not um it's not a private occupation, right? It's not a private hobby. He's doing something for the sake of sale, then the people who come by are going to, you know, they're going to want to look at the various pots and in fact 
potentially handle them. The Gemara goes on to talk about, you know, a contradiction, a contradiction to this and so on. But what was particularly interesting to me was using this uh, case of the potter and the plan to sell as an explanation for the potential for the collusion amongst the donkey drivers as a contrast, as a potential for the collusion against the Kohanim or the potential Kohanim, Hawani Truma, meaning this is far afield and yet really interesting. Um, again, Ketubo talking about issues that are not Ketubo. So, you know, I think it's interesting to see this question be addressed, right? We've been talking up until now about a variety of different scenarios where two people come forward and could either maybe share some information about another person or not, um, and sort of what entertaining the possibility that maybe they actually were working together together in, in sort of to order to trick everybody. Um, and, you know, from there, the Gemara goes into a very interesting discussion where, uh, you yeah. know, we have this sort of machlokas between Rabbi Yehuda and the rabbis that maybe it's just a question of when we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, Yehusin, right? The question of whether or not you're a Kohen, that that's what they have a machlokas over. One basically saying that you can go from, you know, saying somebody's a Kohen to making the jump to saying they truma, one saying that you can't. Um, and then from there, you know, starting on today's stop and moving into tomorrow's stop, they're going to get into a discussion of sort of looking at a variety of different ways that one could prove that they're a Kohen and whether you could use that as proof of being a Kohen. So I, I'm just going to get started with this and you'll see more of it tomorrow. So they asked the following question, right? Is one allowed to use uh, from a document, right? To say, to establish that they actually are a Kohen, right? Hey, Dami, what's the case? Right? Let's say you have a document that says, and I, so I, so-and-so is a Kohen, I sign this as a witness. Right? So is, you know, is basically in that case, who's testifying about him? Like who can actually reassure us or assert for us that he's actually a Kohen? Is it enough just to say that there's a signature and a document and presumably that document was a good document? Is that enough to say that someone's a Kohen? So it says no. Right, this halacha is needed. Because let's say someone writes in a document, "Ani poloni coin lavati manami poloni." I a coin borrowed a hundred, you know, uh, a mana, a hundred dinars from so and so. Right, mu sahadi, and witnesses sign the document. My, here's another question. Right, what's the halacha here? Right, amana odilma akule milsa hamisade. Right? Are, do the witnesses testify only concerning the loan, or are they testifying about everything that's in the document? In other words, are they also verifying that this guy actually was a coin too, or is the only thing they're testifying about just the money? Rav Huna Rachista, Chadamar Malin, Bachadamar Ein Malin. So Rav Huna Rachista have a machlokus about this. One says Malin, one says you can like elevate. In other words, you can go from a document saying this is enough proof to say someone has the yichus of a coin. And one says, you do not elevate. Okay? And then they go through another example. What if we have somebody who gets up in, in, in the big Knesset in the shul and does Berchat Kohanim? 
So can we say based just on that, the fact that the person stands up, they must actually be, uh, they must actually be, uh, 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 they must actually be a Kohen, right? So uh, the Gemara goes on to say, Divai l'man d'amar malimi trumali yechusin. V'tibai l'man d'amar malim. So they said, okay, we can go back to that original machlokas we had with truma, right? That either somebody says you can go from truma to yechusin, or one says, no, you're not allowed to do it. Um, so again, I'm not going to finish reading this entire discussion, but it's basically going to go through a bunch of different permutations of this case. It comes out ultimately that truma and nisiat kapayim are two different things. Truma actually may, you know, and, and can you think of them differently, right? That maybe somebody doesn't go from uh, truma to lineage because truma is sort of eaten in private Right, it could do done bitsina. That's the language of the Gemara, and therefore, a non-priest could do it because they think nobody's actually watching them. Whereas nisiyat kapayim is something that's really done uh, in public. Or, sorry, I went a little bit out of order here. Or one could say that truma is actually a deoraisa. I reversed it here out of the Gemara. Uh, is a deoraisa, and it's at risk of death, and therefore, you know, it, it's you have to be more careful with that as opposed to nisiyat kapayim which would just be if somebody did Nisiyah Kapayim, if they did the priestly uh, benediction and they really didn't have a right to, that would just be doing, uh, it would just be violating a prohibition. So a very, very interesting discussion, which is really looking at like, when we see somebody behaving a certain way and it falls into a category of a coin, does that mean we believe him that he actually is a coin? You know, I'll actually mention, not relating to Kohanim, but I actually have a family member, someone who married into my family, who found out later that he actually was a lady based on his parents' ketubah, you know? So it's sort of using that kind of thing to figure these types of things out. Uh, and there's something particularly difficult, right, with a Kohanim, because we know... <laughs> Historically speaking, we know that the the Kahuna got messed up. People were selling rights to the Kohana, like it, you know, in the time period around by Etchini, I think, right? Like it, the question of whether one was truly a Kohen or not, you know, ha, was was corrupted. And how are you going to figure that out? You know, there's I know there's talk about the Kohen gene, but it's not reliable in this kind of thing, right? The point is that. The whole way you know you're Kohen is because your father was a Kohen and his father was a Kohen and so on. So the only way to prove it is really word of mouth. And then if word of mouth has been messed up, you know, there's a great um, there's a great concern. Who is a real Kohen? Anyway, it's a it's a historical conundrum as well as a legal one. Right. And I want to be clear, the example I gave for my family, you know, that's just trying to to determine if somebody was a lady, but Cohen is a much bigger deal, right? You once you say you're a Cohen, these all these uh, gifts that you could partake in. Again, those are things we don't get now, but you know all the things that the Cohen could get, not just Truma itself, uh, being able to you know do the priestly benediction. Um, but I think that's exactly what it goes to, which is you know later at the end of the stop, it brings uh, an example from what happens at the time of the Shivatzion when everybody uh, returns, and when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, and that's who they quote here, there were a bunch of questions about who actually a Kohen was, that even in that period of 70 years, from the end of Bayat Rishon to the beginning of Bayat Shani, it was not really clear uh, 
who is actually a Kohen. And so the Gemara actually discusses this, that Gedolah Chazaka, right? That if there was sort of this presumptive status, if, if, we, if, if someone sort of had a family tradition or said like, oh, I know I'm a Kohen, based on these Pesukim and Ezra, right? It seems that, uh, you know, and also in Nehemiah, that basically they were allowed to keep that status as, uh, they were allowed to keep that status as Kohanim themselves. Um, so just pay this, this discussion goes on into the next page. The next topic makes a discussion about, let's say you see somebody who gets up and gets the first Aliyah. Is that enough proof to say that there are Kohen? But it's, you know, I, what I like about this whole passage is, first of all, they sort of use all different things that we know Kohanim do, and they go through each and every one to say, well, if a person does this, which we know is something a Kohen does, and also, you know, this discussion really at the bottom of this particular Amud uh, about Ezra Nehemiah and the Shivat Zion. This wasn't a theoretical question for the Gemara. This actually was a very important question when they went to build the second Beit HaMikdash. I also think it's amazing when you read the story in Ezra Nehemiah that only after a period of 70 years, but I guess the chaos of people being thrown into Galut of the diaspora, that even then lineage was actually lost and, and was called into question. It's a big conundrum and it's not going away fast, right? Meaning these are things that it's, it's useful that we don't have too much practical application right now because we don't have an easy way to determine this. Well, that's our tap discussion for the day. Rank is reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend e. Michelle Barber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.